a story that hit the radar late last week, a VPD officer charged with assault stemming from an on-duty incident outside the Vancouver Police Department jail in March of last year, in 2021. And our next guest is joining us, not really specifically to talk about the details of that headline, but rather the impact headlines like this have on public trust of law enforcement and the erosion of it. Tom Stamatakis is, was the president of the BC Police Union and is the current president of the Canadian Police Association. Tom, thanks for doing this. You're welcome. I'm very glad to have you on here. Uh, it struck uh, many of us last uh, week when we saw that horrifying uh, bank robbery in Saanich. Watching those ERTs running towards the gunfire, right? Running towards danger in the name of public safety. Uh, very different than the rhetoric that might come from just one clickbaity headline about an officer being charged with assault. Uh, those scales of public opinion swing wildly. And I just wanted to talk through how difficult it must be uh, for uh, the law enforcement and frankly for public who are, are see the trust eroding. I wanted to talk that through with you. You're always very available and straightforward. Uh, you and I have met over Twitter. We've had conversations here on radio. How did that VPD headline land with you last week? Let's start there. Well, without talking specifically about that incident, headlines uh, when they're reporting what the incidents that the police have been involved with typically are, um, you know, hard sometimes to, 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 to be okay with, to understand, to, they do have an impact because over time, you know, the language is often inflammatory. It's often not reflective of what actually happened. And yeah, it's hard to take. It's, it's difficult to take when you know that, uh, you know, police officers, not just in Vancouver, but in communities right across the country, come to work every day. They're trying to do the best they can. They're 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 doing incredible work in communities everywhere, um, and, and so these are frustrating headlines. And you just talked about the incident in Saanich. Even some of those headlines, you know, if if you didn't know the context or see some of the coverage, you know, some of the headlines, you know, police shoot and kill two sus suspects at a at a robbery, where where in fact you know, you, you know, using more neutral or objective language would be better. Uh, in, in this case, what really happened is these police officers were ambushed and, and some were, were shot before they even got out of the vehicle they were in. Uh, and, and I think a headline that was more reflective of that would, would probably provide a more balanced perspective to, to, to listeners and viewers uh, that don't know what's going on and that rely on the, on the, on the news media for their information. Full disclosure, I say this every time I speak about law enforcement, a very close relative of mine is a, a high-ranking member of the VPD, and she is one of the most dedicated individuals that that I've ever met, never mind somebody in my family. Uh, so I want to just make sure that, that that's out there. So I see the rhetoric from uh, those who would say... Uh, oh, let's pick the cliches. They're not cliches. I guess the, the that's not the right... Uh, wording for it. The, the terminology that we've come to 
uh, here regularly when there are bad actors within law enforcement, because there are bad actors in pretty much every walk of life. Um, but when we get to, you know, what we see south of the border in the United States and how different policing is there versus here, and yet the the, the terminology, the defund the police or what have you, uh, definitely seeps into uh, the Canadian um, pushback, I guess. What what can we do to better inform and and discuss Canadian policing when there are shortcomings? We can talk about the RCMP um, and and the the issues surrounding uh, sexual assault and harassment in that uh, arm of law enforcement in this country. So, I mean, there's no sort of washing it all clean and it's all just bad in the United States and it's fine here in Canada. But to your point of the good people who are running towards danger, like we saw in Saanich, how do we stop? the the pendulum from swinging from one extreme to the other in terms of of how people everyday joe and jill public um reflect on policing in our country well i think context is important i mean in the in the last year that sats canada produced um you know data with respect to police agencies and 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 the work they do in this country uh police responded to 13 million calls for service um you know, most of those calls were managed or handled without any kind of notice or, or, or fanfare. Um, but, you know, we just talked about the one headline that talked about the police officer who's charged with assault. Um, you know, we use force very rarely in this country. In fact, the research that we do have suggests that we use force probably less than 1% of the time that we interact with the public. Unfortunately, those incidents, when they do happen, they do receive some attention because a we're you know we're out there 24 7 we're very visible and often because of the circumstances that lead to the interaction between the police and a member of the public there can be really negative outcomes people get hurt in in the worst uh, uh type of uh, situation people people die and, and so they do rightly attract a lot of attention but that's why we have you know, in in every province now across the country, you know, multiple layers of oversight in British Columbia. You've got uh, the independent investigations office that deal with serious incidents where an injury does occur or a death occurs. We've got the 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 office of police complaints commissioner that look at public complaints. Uh, those are both independent civilian led agencies. So I, I think it's about context. It's about talking more about these systems we have in place to oversee police activities and communities to make sure that we're complying with uh, regulations and standards and interacting with the community in a way that they expect us to interact with them in, in, in a way that's appropriate. And, and, and that's what's missing. And, and the problem now, when you get those negative headlines, they're amplified by the various um, other media or social media platforms. And then you start to fall into the trap of thinking, well, this is what happens all the time. And, you know, you mentioned the RCMP. But the RCMP have, you know, 20,000 police officers working right across this country in communities that you can only fly into and fly out of. You, have, you might have one individual officer working, dealing with some pretty challenging circumstances in those communities. And we need to make sure that, again, we have the right context. And we don't lose sight of the fact that, yeah, there's, there's some negative. And when those things happen, we need to make sure that people are accountable and there's appropriate outcomes. And we learn from those incidents when they happen but at the same time there's a lot of positive that happens in communities right across the country 
Jody Vance in for Mike Smith, and we're continuing our conversation about law enforcement with the uh, president of the Canadian Police Association, Tom Stamatakis, is with us. Phone lines are open for your calls and questions, 604-280-9898, star 9898, a free call on your cell. Before we head to the phones, Tom, I want to ask you a little bit about some of the things that have escalated the the distrust or the the pushback from the public on law enforcement, um, watching what happened south of the border uh, with George Floyd, watching what's what's happening uh, south of the border with Jalen Walker right now, the young man who was shot some 60 times, 90 bullets uh, headed in the direction of that young man uh, who was unarmed uh, where he was shot, but apparently law enforcement found a, a, a weapon in his vehicle. There's a lot of conversation around that happening today right now but also the thin blue line discussion, uh, le- the defund the police piece. There's a lot here, Tom. Can you can you simplify for us how this impacts law enforcement here in Canada? Yeah, that's been a it's been a frustrating couple of years. I, I mean, uh, a lot of these kinds of things start in the United States. It's it's you know, there are neighbors to the south. While there are many similarities, there are many differences as well. You know, this is a country with 18,000 different law enforcement agencies, 700,000 police officers. There's, there's about 240 million calls for for uh, service, 9-11 calls for police service in the United States. Huge gun culture that, that obviously has been well documented. We know a lot about. And that influence and many other socioeconomic issues, social issues that, that, that influence, you know, incidents that happen there. And then of course they get reported here in Canada as though it's reflective. And I'm not suggesting for a minute that we don't have our own issues because we do, they've been well-documented and and we could spend a lot of time talking about our own issues here, but we often import some of these activities or events that happen in the States and, and talk about them here. And, And there are people that want to talk about them like this here, whether they have an agenda or, you know, they have a particular ideology when it comes to policing or the rule of law. Uh, and so they import these issues and it has a very wearing effect. And, and it, particularly when you, it, it's not just the headlines, but when you see elected officials, uh, officials that represent our public institutions here in Canada, start to make comments that are not informed by, by, the, by the data and the evidence that's available and the experience that's available here in Canada, start to react and make uninformed comments that has a further wearing and undermining effect and and it really has an impact on people we're going through a significant challenge right now for example retaining our people recruiting new people at a time when there's a huge emphasis on more diversity better gender equity which are all important objectives in terms of policing and the kind of police services we want in our communities but you can't have it both ways. You can't kick the crap out of the police every day and then expect to be able to go into those communities that don't see policing as a first option when it comes to a career choice and, and expect them to want to come into policing and make a contribution in, in, in our police services in our communities. So I think we need to have a more thoughtful conversation about policing in this country, in this country informed by our experiences and, 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 and what happens here, not what happens in another country. Tom Stamatakis is the president of the Canadian Police Association and agreed to take calls with me here. And we've got some phone calls to 604-280-9898, star 9898, a free call on your cell. Dave and Burnaby, you're up first. Welcome. 
Yeah, either. I, I, I'm sure your guests would agree that, you know, they don't select police officers from planet Jupiter or planet Mars, right? Police officers are human beings. And I'm sure you would agree as well that with policing, just like everyday life, things aren't so black and white. There's a lot of shades of gray. There's a lot of moving parts involved. So my question for your, your colleague, if I'm not mistaken, he's also the former union uh, head or union rep of Vancouver Police Department. So my question for him is that um, this is concerning for me because, you know, they say from the YouTube generation or cell phone generation, uh, police officers being malicious uh, is not getting worse. It's being filmed now. Now, you could argue that for every one video of a police officer being malicious, there could be 10 or 100 videos of a police officer being more reasonable or compassionate or at the very least doing your job by the book. I'm sure he would agree. I would be the first to say that, too. My question for him is, though, is that when police officers are alleged to have done wrongdoing and are malicious, and as a member of the public, when we grill them or we question of that, of that, it's very concerning for me that these police officers, a lot of times, they tend to, quote-unquote, lawyer up. In terms Sorry of being, to jump in. I've only yeah. got 30 seconds yeah. here, Dave. So, I've so only got 30 be, seconds. Yeah. So, Tom, do you want to do you want to react to Dave? Sure, yeah. P- look, he's absolutely right. Police officers are people, too. They're, they live in our communities. They're your neighbors, your relatives. Uh, and they, we make them work long shifts. We expose them to more trauma than any most members of the public will ever experience in their lifetime. So, yeah, things happen. But I'll tell you, it's in no one's interest to to protect people that are engaged in misconduct. But th- but people who are accused of misconduct are entitled to be treated fairly and have access to the same type of processes that every other person has with respect to responding to allegations of misconduct. And that's what happens. And typically there'll be an outcome and sometimes it results in dismissal or other times it results in different types of outcomes, including more training or some form of discipline. But, but again, I alluded to the systems we have in place to deal with that, and I think it's important that every time there is a concern from a citizen, we do respond appropriately, but also recognize that it's a very challenging job that the uh, police officers do in, di- in difficult hey. circumstances often that unfold in a very dynamic way, and Got sometimes it. things will happen. Well, hello there, Jody Vanson. For Mike Smith, I want to remind you that our buzz lines are always there for you. If you want to call and leave a message, we ran short on time there with Tom Stamatakis, the president of the Canadian Police Association. I wanted to put it out there. Those who are waiting patiently on the line, we didn't have time to get to you. I would love for you to phone and leave a message on our buzz line. 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-BUZZ. 2899 is the number to call and leave me a voicemail. We'll play your calls at the end of the show. You can email me at any time as well. Jody at cknw.com. That's Jody with a Y at cknw.com. Listeners, regular listeners often reach out even when I'm not live on the radio. Uh, I got an email from Mary this weekend. It was yesterday, actually. And Mary said, hope you're okay with me reading this out loud, Mary, because we've literally booked the next 30 minutes based on your email Mary said, I'm not sure who's on deck tomorrow, but I'm I'm hearing some troubling reports of a virus hitting school-age kids that is not COVID. This email was directed to myself and Mike Smith. Mike's back on Thursday, by the way. Mary said, our youngest grandkids, who are typically uh, don't get everything that goes around, are 8, 10, and 12. My daughter tells me this virus started ripping through the kids at the end of school. The 12-year-old had it two weeks ago. They were scheduled to come over to the island tomorrow for the week, but our eight-year-old grandson woke up with a raging fever this morning and is flat out. Several of their friends, kids have it, high fever, completely out of action. 
our grandkids and all other others affected are vaccinated. One friend's son had it for five days. To quote her friend's doctor, he said he's never swabbed so many throats and tons of viruses circulating. That's not COVID, end quote. Maybe we missed it, but we've not heard anything on the TV or radio news about it. But in Googling unknown viruses hitting school-aid children, never a good idea to Google that, by the way. Just now, it said about the RSV virus that its strange behavior appeared to be a direct consequence of the COVID lockdowns and hygiene measures that suppressed the coronavirus, but others as well, so the children didn't have the opportunity to build up the immunity against them. I just find it odd that there's no coverage on it. Thank you for taking the time to read this, your listener, Mary. Okay, so what do you do when you get an email like that? You go to the expert on such things, good friend of the program, always very generous with his time, is none other than Dr. Brian Conway, the medical director and infectious diseases specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Center. Dr. Conway, welcome. Jody, it's an absolute pleasure. And Mary, that is such a smart, smart email. And uh, I look forward to commenting on it. Let's dive right into what we're going to open phones for you as well uh, for Dr. Conway. If you've got a question, let's open up those phone lines. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898. A free call on your cell. If you've got something going on that you're, you, you were testing for COVID, it's not COVID. What is it? Uh, Dr. Conway, help Mary and, and her family and her family's friend group understand what is happening with these non-COVID viruses circulating through our province? Well, first, I think that when you see an illness such as what you described, it's important to swab for COVID because new variants may appear and we need to make sure that it isn't COVID. If it isn't, what happens when people spend a lot of time close together in normal life is that viruses do transmit that people generally will get mild illnesses and they will develop protection against these viruses over time. So that there's sort of community-based protection that prevents the spread of viruses, especially at times such as this, when it's warmer and we don't get so much time together indoors and viruses transmit less well. If that community-based immunity did not develop in the background and someone develops an infection, which is possibly RSV, then it would spread more rapidly and more easily to others because there just isn't any protection around. So that's probably what's happening. The answer is, if you're sick, stay home, stay away from people until you feel better so that we can limit community-based spread of these infections where protection just doesn't exist where it did in the era before covid yeah, Dr. Conway, so I'm a parent, I, and, and I feel this, like any symptom all of a sudden brings with it so much more, uh, well, frankly, anxiety with it than it did prior to the global pandemic that we've all, uh, you know, steeled ourselves through. It's just been such a difficult two and a half years that where we used to, oh, it's just a cold, we're good, or we'll just monitor that fever, you know, we'll do the bananas, rice, applesauce, toast diet, or the, you know... <laughs> We'll, we'll yes. give a little we'll give a little Tylenol. If it, that doesn't work, we'll knock it back with some Advil. And today it's like, oh, my goodness, it's awful. What should we be doing? What should we what action should we take? We swab for COVID. It's not COVID. We're staying home. We're staying safe. A flat out youngster can can really spike the concern of a parent in this era. Well, I think some of the habits that we've acquired during the world of COVID should become permanent. 
So staying home if you're sick and keeping sick people, children away from others for the time that they're very sick is going to serve us well. Washing our hands is key because a lot of these viruses transmit from you touching your nose while you're sick and then your hand touching someone else's hand and then their hand touching their nose and then that inoculates the virus into the other person. So washing your hands helps to interrupt that transmission. And let's not forget about masks. If you're feeling a little bit of a sniffle or something and you really need to go out, wear a mask. If you go into an environment, closed environment, small number of people, you don't know them, they're all wearing masks, put your mask on. And I think these are the kinds of things that should become permanent in our lives. So Dr. Conway, when it comes to the non-COVID bugs or viruses... And, and the kids, you know, it's going through the house or it's going through the family, it's going through the friend group. What, what steps are best to take? Do you go and check in with your pharmacist and say, hey, is everybody talking about something that's going around that's not COVID? Or do you need to go to the doctor? Like, are we doing a home test to make sure it's not COVID? Are we, are we going to something more, uh, I don't know, reliable is the right word. I know we've heard that rapid tests can be um, false negatives uh, quite regularly. Is there, is there a proper step-by-step process that should be taken when these symptoms present themselves? Stay home, do a rapid test. If it is negative and you're still concerned, do another rapid test the next day because that increases the reliability of the rapid test to very near the traditional test and it keeps you home and away from other people. In terms of when to see the doctor, it is the same as it was before COVID is if there is a change in the condition, if the individual is more short of breath, if the individual is, is just looking sicker, then you go see a doctor. Otherwise, many of these things can be dealt with at home. Rest, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, or Advil, Tylenol, make sure hydration is maintained, and just keep a close watch on that individual uh, while keeping them away from other people for, to whom they could transmit the, uh, the virus. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. We're with Dr. Brian Conway, good friend of the program. He's the medical director and infectious diseases specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Center. And Dr. Conway, we often talk COVID, 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 COVID with you. You've been so (laughs) generous with your time. But this particular segment, really, I wanted to find out the non-COVID piece of this puzzle. Because prior to that global pandemic, we had lots to worry about when it came to our health. And prior to the break, I posed my question somewhat stumbled through it, actually. But what are the things that we're looking for? What are the cues that we are looking for in this era of, you know, hopefully some end game of the pandemic, but but having, you know, the flu or other common viruses act in unfamiliar ways and, and maybe mixing with COVID-19. So once we test negative for COVID, maybe a couple days in a row, What are the symptoms that should say, okay, we need to go to the hospital here? So it's important not to wait too long. If you're at all concerned, I think that trying to contact your healthcare provider, your physician, and describing the symptoms, seeing if there's something unusual that uh, really uh, should be dealt with quickly. So different types of symptoms, a rash, joint pain, something that isn't quite typical that the doctor might say you need to come in right now. Now, if things are going fairly well and you can stay home. The things to watch for is getting short of breath, getting drowsy, getting confused. And in children, if, they, um, if they're not peeing as much, this is usually a sign of dehydration as a result 
of an illness, and that needs urgent attention. So those are the key things that I look for if someone calls me and asks, should I go to the emergency room or not? All right. Good information. Thank you for that. Dr. Brian Conway, available for your calls now to 604-280-9898. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell. That's star 9898. Peter and Poco, you're up first. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to ask, we had to go to the hospital a month or two ago, and uh, I'm fully vaccinated. In fact, I've got the fourth one. Um, but when I was in the hospital, they tested me four days straight for COVID and all the results came back inconclusive. And I was advised that that generally is an indication that I had it or have it. Um, I'm just wondering, like, what does it mean if, in your opinion, you get uh, more than a few, like it was four times I was tested and every test came back inconclusive. Can you comment on that? Yeah, it's an interesting result. I think that there are additional blood tests that can be done to try and sort through that. It certainly would be of concern uh, to me. And in people who have received many vaccines for, which is absolutely uh, fantastic, it may be that the amount of virus associated with COVID illness is so small that the uh, rapid tests or the PCR tests even are producing inconclusive results. Hopefully that answers your question, Peter. Thanks for calling in. Let's go Thank to Dorothy you. in Rich. You're welcome, Peter. Dorothy in Richmond, thanks for your Hello, patience. I, welcome. Hi, I've got a question. How, how good is coverage for a person who is on chemo medication? The vaccine, in terms of the COVID vaccine, I presume we're speaking of? Yes, yes. Yeah, the, uh, it's important to get all of the shots to which you are entitled because response is decreased, especially if it's a blood-type cancer. But in any kind of chemotherapy, uh, the, uh, the uh, response to the vaccine is less good and lasts a bit less long. But right. uh, vaccines are still helpful. Good, yes, yeah, I've had all my shots, and uh, and I still wear a mask whenever I'm out. Excellent, Dorothy. Thank you for tuning okay. in, and we hope you stay safe and stay well. Let's go to Gary in Thank Vancouver. You. Gary, you're up next. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Conway. Um, I just want to make a comment, like you just, uh, before the break, had said about um, doing the rapid test. Uh, about a few weeks ago, I had like uh, really bad uh, congestion, nothing really serious in that. So I was concerned. I have some young relatives, my nephews visiting. So I did the rapid test three days in a row, and each time it was negative. So w- would you say that I probably didn't have COVID then? It was, it was almost like a, a bad cold maybe, but I did have COVID back in early May and just uh, a, a bad dry cough for about, a week and that was it that one definitely tested positive right so serial rapid tests uh, in the absence of any ongoing exposure to covid make the test result uh, much more reliable and i would say that on the face of it three straight negative rapid tests indicate that this wasn't covid that's great great thank you 
Thank you, Gary. Appreciate your call. Thanks for tuning in. I got a, an email from Bill as well. Jody, I've been testing for COVID every morning since my running nose that afternoon and my wife tested positive. So I'm checking using those rapid tests and lo and behold, tested positive as well as coming up this morning negative. However, except for the runny nose last Monday, literally no, uh, absolutely no sympathy. Also, my wife got her negative test seven days after first positive. In my case, also seven days. However, my question is because having no symptoms, am I still contagious? Do I need to still continue to quarantine? I would say that five days into an illness, we generally recommend that as long as the situation is getting better, as long as there is no fever, that an individual can then return to their usual activities. Reminding ourselves that we still want to, uh, you know, wash our hands. If we get sicker, we stay home, uh, make sure we get all our shots and the like. But, uh, yeah, several days into the illness, as long as things are not getting worse, you have no fever, then no special, special precautions are required. Great. Bill also followed up on that email moments later and said, P.S. I'm four vaccinated and she is three. So the the vaccines are a big piece of this puzzle. As always, Dr. Conway, thank you for your time. Thank you for for leaning in on what isn't COVID-19 and how to use those rapid tests and what we need to do if we're feeling unwell, which basically bottom line, stay home, but don't waste time in contacting medical professionals if you feel your symptoms of whatever you might have. Uh, are, are, are unusual or, or feeling bad enough that might need uh, medical assistance. I think I've got that, that down pat. You teach me every time, Dr. Conway. Pleasure. Thanks for having, uh, thanks for taking the time to come here. All right. Welcome back. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. And this next 30 minutes is dedicated to your calls and questions for scientist, microbiologist, Jason Tetro. He has a specialty in emerging pathogens like COVID-19 couple of things on the docket for today, including the fact that uh, there's a lot of talk about the third Omicron wave having begun in BC, and it's expected to grow rapidly. We'll get some intel from Jason on that, as well as how scientists are keeping an eye on a new COVID variant, BA.2.75. Uh, for some reason, Jason Tetro requested some Lenny Kravitz on the way in. I need to ask about that as well. Jason, welcome. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Uh, great to be with you again. All right. Explain the song. <sighs> well, we are going to take a journey today into the world of COVID and mutations and why we want to be able to protect ourselves. So I'm hoping that everyone's going to come my way and we're going to answer some questions along the way. Gotcha. Okay. So we do have the phone lines open. He's backed by popular demand. Every time I have Jason on the show, we never have an opportunity to get to all of the calls that are lined up. So now's your chance to get on the phone board. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell. You and I were talking, Jason, as we were setting up today's uh, segments, and the one that I was just referencing, how science is, scientists are keeping an eye on this new variant. Let's talk about this, because as I read through it, even though I'm two and a half years in of, of just trying to follow along on the ever-evolving science and the evol evolving and, and mutating COVID-19 spike protein, the nine <laughs> mutations of the spike. I don't know. I, I need you here. Can you give us right. the, the most layman's term explanation of this new variant of Omicron? 
Sure. So essentially what happens is when we have our immune system, um, we are essentially designing what is a, a blockade. That's what the antibodies do. They block the ability of the virus to get into your cells, which is essentially necessary to cause an infection. When we have the vaccine or if we've had a previous infection, we have a pool of different types of antibodies. And when you put all of those together, they sort of make sort of this protective mold around us. Well, when you start having these mutations within the spike protein, what ends up happening is it starts punching holes into that protective layer until finally it gets to a point where rather than looking like a really nice protective mold, it looks like a colander. Right. And what has happened is that since the original lineage started mutating, we've been seeing those holes being punched in. And now we're at a point where we have two very different strains. One is called uh, BA.5 and the other one is BA2.75, uh, BA.2.75 lots of dots. Um, yeah, and so those dots. have got so many different mutations that it renders our immunity, at least at the antibody level, um, essentially it renders it almost inutile. And that's the problem that we're facing right now. So it doesn't matter if you had the vaccine, the preliminary series, or even if you've had the preliminary series and you've had uh, one of the infections like an Omicron BA.1 or a BA.2, you're still at risk of getting these. And so that's where we are right now. The big issue that we're facing here in Canada is the fact that if you had already gotten a third shot, that, bo that first booster, there's a good likelihood you would be able to have mild symptoms and maybe not go too more severe. But when we only have about, when we have about 60% of the population who have actually gotten that first booster, that means that there's 40% who may still end up having um, moderate to severe infections, even if they've already had that preliminary series, that's where we are today. Right. So it's the need for everyone to get that third booster, right? No, no bad time to even get a first dose if you've never, uh, you know, bought into the idea yeah. that vaccines will save you. But even pe there are people who were like, I'm going to wait a little bit, maybe not anti-vaxxers, mm -hmm. but maybe I'm going to wait. Now's your opportunity to stop waiting, right? Like we have seen enough science yeah. on what works enough, even with that colander effect of the new mutations, it's still that severe illness, hospitalization and death piece that is so key. Jason, where the phone lines are, are lighting up for you as always, 604-280-9898, right. star 9898, a free call on your cell. We're going to circle back to more on this new variant and, and how it's going to impact um, perhaps reinfection and the like. But let's get to Carrie in Vancouver first. Carrie, welcome. Hi. Yeah, just wondering why. I've had a third. I'm mm -hmm. CEV. And why is BC not offering a fourth? Right. So what we have seen over the last little while is that because of all the mutations that have occurred in the spike protein, the fourth really was only to give people that boost that they needed in the event that they didn't have a strong enough immune system, okay? And that mm -hmm. was essentially people who are 70 and older. That's where you are right now in British Columbia. Now, yeah. the National Advisory Committee for Immunization, NACI, has suggested that we actually should be giving that fourth, or yeah. offering, not giving, but offering that fourth dose to everybody. Yeah. And we should start to see more provinces beginning to offer this or making it available to anybody who wants it. 
And well, you know, there, there's phoned. one other aspect. Yeah. yeah, I phoned. My last booster was last November, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm 69. I'm clinically vulnerable, and they won't give it. Like the, I just give it a little bit I don't of- understand it. Just you know what, we, we, I, I got to tell you, let me jump in here just quickly, Jason, if you will, Carrie, I, I hear you. I feel your pain here because we're getting a lot of calls and emails, people, you know, asking why not? If I want it, why not? If it's there and mm-hmm. they're expiring on the shelves, why not? We actually have a call out to Health Minister Adrian Dix to join us here on the program. He got back to me yesterday and said, I can't make it today because he is uh, is he's out doing the thing in Cloverdale where there's a new health center opening there. Uh, but he said he would make himself available later on this week. I'm hopeful to have him on tomorrow, hopefully hear yeah. back from his comms people as soon as possible to ask just that question, Carrie. If you want it, why can't you just have it, even if they're not doing widespread rollout. For somebody who's 69 mm-hmm. and vulnerable, it doesn't seem, Jason, it doesn't seem outrageous for Carrie uh, or her physician to say, you know what, sure. Well, and the other thing is, is that if you're 69, that's kind of close enough to 70. And that's right. one of the things that I always have a problem with. It's just like, it it really shouldn't be just at a certain age, all of a sudden you qualify and at another age you don't. It's just... Right. This is where we start getting into talking with the the policy experts, uh, including the minister. And I would really like to hear that answer because we do need to make sure that the people who are most vulnerable have access. And at this point, now we've had NASIs say that there should be access. I'm hoping that that two to three week lag after that happens, we'll start seeing provinces making sure that everybody who's above the age of 12 have access to that particular fourth dose if they want it. Vanson for Mike Smith, Jason Tetro, microbiologist with a specialty in emerging pathogens like COVID-19 with us to take your calls and questions. And I'm telling you right now, there's no such thing as a stupid question. If you want to run something by a scientist who has a serious knack for being able to make things consumable for those of us who are not experts in the field, uh, this is your opportunity. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell phone. Stephen Port Moody, you are up first. Welcome. Hello there. Hello. Hi, Jason. I have a, a question that uh, will you'll hopefully be able to unravel. Uh, I'll confess, I am a retired neuroscientist with an evolutionary background. Uh, I cut my teeth on the chronic fatigue syndrome folks who study Uh, them. But I hit my stride with Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Mm -hmm. And so now I am wondering, could you speculate on a little bit of reality versus science fiction? Could our mutations take us to the point where we have a long latency uh, incubation period mm-hmm. where nobody, where people are infectious, but they don't show symptoms for oh, maybe a couple of months. But those yeah. infections eventually lead to disruptions of the nervous system yeah. uh, with viral fragments landing in cortical <laughs> tissue where we show symptoms two, three years. So the long COVID people, for example, are long COVID for the rest of their lives. Um, yeah. Dark scenario, that's science fiction, but I would love to hear your opinion. Thank you. Well, actually, believe it or not, um, I, I'm going to get scientific for two, two seconds. Um, there's an article in Cell 
that you might actually be very interested in because it's actually talking about how COVID can break down myelin and actually dysregulate it and lead to neural cell problems. For the rest of everybody else out there, what this means is that when the virus gets inside of you, it can actually hide in different areas of your body. And when it does hide in those areas, it can start leading to two things. One is it can cause your immune system to go completely off kilter. And that's going to affect not only your blood and your body, but it's also going to affect your brain. And the second thing that it could do is it could possibly hang out there, mutate, and then come out as a different strain altogether that will all of a sudden start spreading around the world. And we've seen this with other viruses, including Ebola. So these are possible, and and, uh, West Nile virus, by the way, I should also mention that. So these are options that could possibly happen. We don't have enough data to find out. But what we do know from the original SARS back in 2003 is we do have persistence. We do have long-term effects on the body. So we should be seeing this happening. And so it's not to really scare you. It's just more to give you perspective that this is much more than a common cold or a flu virus. This thing could possibly lead to significant disability down the road if you do catch it. So that's one of the reasons why I keep saying barrier protection is the best way to make sure you do not get this virus. All right, let's continue down the phone boards. It's Vicky's turn. Vicky and Burnaby, welcome to the show. Your question for Jason Tetro. Yes, Jason, I'm rather astounded, especially after just listening to that statement of the very (laughs) limited access to Paxlovid. I'm actually have tested positive. Mm -hmm. I'm 72. I have sleep apnea. I have an autoimmune deficiency disease. Yes, I don't qualify because you need three diseases, not just two. I spent seven and a half hours at Burnaby Hospital on Saturday to absolutely get nothing. I know they did blood work, mm-hmm. then they forgot to do the second uh, pull for the heart one, so that was four hours in, and then when I finally saw a doctor at six hours in, an x-ray was ordered. An hour yeah. waiting to do the x-ray at 11.15 at night, I was dehydrated, exhausted, my fever was climbing, and I left. So I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... This is about getting Paxlovid, correct? That and, <laughs> I mean, trying to figure out what you could get would be a good idea. Yeah, that's more or less what it, that, that's, I think, where we really want to be having this discussion. Because with Paxlovid, there is a specific requirement in order for you to be able to take it. And the reason for that is that while Paxlovid is very good, it also can be resisted against by the virus. So if you're taking Paxlovid and you're taking it for those five days and you don't clear the infection because your immune system may not be helping it along the way, it could actually develop resistance. And then all of a sudden we can no longer use Paxlovid. And this is what happened in the cases of HIV way, way, way back when. So the protease inhibitors that they were using back then, um, HIV became resistant to it. All of a sudden we can't do it. Now we have for HIV multiple 
treatments that can help. We don't have that yet for COVID or SARS-CoV-2. So while it may seem like you were being rejected, it's actually not a rejection towards yourself. It's just the fact that we have not in the medical community gotten to a point where we can provide you with the right amount of medications to make sure everything is working. And unfortunately, we call it supportive therapy, which is really just a misnomer for we can't really do much for you. Um, I'm sorry that you had to spend so much time in the hospital for that. But um, you not have to, to mention it's it's an antiviral that is as in demand as anything could be on the planet. Let's get to one more phone caller here. We're short on time and long on callers. Carrie and Coquitlam, you're up next. Hello. 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 Um, I have two grandsons who are have not received their third uh, dose of vaccine. Mm-hmm. And the main reason that they have decided not to at the moment is because of the reactions they had to their previous vaccine injections. Mm-hmm. And I, I have done my best to try to convince them, but I would appreciate your, your comments. Yeah, so... Um, there is no doubt that you are going to have some adverse events to the vaccines. They, they give you a wallop, as I've been saying for two years now. Um, the fact is that everyone is going to have a different reaction to this vaccine. Um, sitting here in Edmonton on, uh, on a microphone, I can't really say much about what possibly could be going on. This is where the healthcare provider can come in because they will they will be able to look at what the adverse reactions were and whether or not going for that third dose could help. But there are individuals I know who essentially even after the first dose had such severe reactions that they couldn't even get the booster. And when you come to that point, you kind of have to get to looking at masks, that barrier protection to be able to help while we go through these waves. It's not really the best answer, and I do apologize, but I'm not going to speculate on anything when it comes to somebody's health. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. The Assembly of First Nations annual general meeting is coming up and attending as a First Nations citizen, according to the AFN requirements, is former chief of Klaus, former board of director of the BCAFN, a regional arm of the Association of First Nations, someone I've I've come to know through covering truth and reconciliation stories at my other job as Canadian correspondent with Al Jazeera English, someone who's very adept, exceptional, in fact, at educating people who are trying to be the most engaged of humble learners. With me on the line is James DeLorem. Hello there, James. Good morning, Jody. So great to chat with you. And in speaking with you yesterday, going back and forth about this segment, I thought it really important that our listener have an idea of what this AFN annual general meeting is all about. And in particular, how this is a critical moment for the national chief, Roseanne Archibald, who's, who's been making headlines in recent weeks. Thanks, Jody. And yeah, it's it's a critical moment for sure. It's unprecedented, if you will. But to back it up just a little bit, um, you know, the AFN, the Assembly of First Nations, uh, represents uh, all First Nations in Canada. And we have the different regions uh, in all provinces where we have regional chiefs. And so uh, the AGA, um, the Assembly, is for the chiefs to come together and discuss policy and mandates and um, and, and this is quite normal every year. And, uh, but, you know, 
as you mentioned, there's definitely some controversy and, un, as I mentioned, unprecedented activities around National Chief Roseanne Archibald and um, definitely some, some uh, areas of concern for First Nations chiefs and also community members who are watching. So what is happening with Chief Roseanne Archibald? And, and there was much fanfare when she was elected as the first uh, woman in that position, first female national chief, and then, you know, definitely center stage with um, all of the happenings at the Kamloops Residential School with the unmarked graves there and then welcoming the prime minister there, reacting to the prime minister's vacation as opposed to acknowledgement of the first day of reflection, uh, the first uh, tr- tr- day of truth and reconciliation in Canada. And she's been very upfront and and m- might I even say media friendly. Uh, and then suddenly there are these accusations um, still yet to be proven. I don't know how the process works within the uh, Assembly of First Nations, but can you give me your learned perspective on what we're watching here with Chief Roseanne Archibald? Yeah, thanks, Jody. And, you know, those points are really important that, you know, and something that I've always supported since day one is uh, is having a matriarch, you know, in that role as national chief is, is it, it, this is this is the first time. And I've always supported in the past, I've supported um, female national chiefs in this role. And so it was really great news when we finally learned that uh, um, National Chief Roseanne uh, was elected. And unfortunately, we, we started to see after all the, the work that had started to initially take place, you know, on, in her office and the, in the offices for the regional chiefs, really started to see some, you know, movement towards um, all the different, addressing all the different um, needs and, and concerns of, of First Nations in Canada and all the, the points that you made. Um, and it was very good. We felt very good about that. And now, you know, you move ahead a little bit further and, and see what's this a little bit of, um, you know, conflict that's taking place. And, um, and and the really interesting part is, you know, from my experience as chief of Clahoos First Nation and also as a as a board member on the BCAFN prior to under the uh, regional chief uh, Shane Godfordson, um, you know, we, we did when, when a, a conflict came up, we, we dealt with it as we do in our communities, as we, we take a look at things, we discuss things, we, we take time to understand what the issues are. And we find a way, a pathway, and it's normally through our matriarchs and our elders that give us that guidance to move forward. So um, in this case, though, it's, it's gone quite public. It's, it's gone into a place where um, courts are involved and um, there's differing differences of points of views. And it made it really, um, if I can say this, public. And so now the public is asking, you know, what's going on and what's happening? And uh, quite honestly, um, it, we hope, or at least I hope as a First Nation citizen, that the chiefs in assembly, which we rely on constantly for guidance and support, is this is the um, arena or the venue where we're going to be able to talk about these things and hopefully we talk about them clear-minded with um, uh, open heart and, and start to do things with the guidance of our elders. If there's one thing, James, that I have learned in covering Truth and Reconciliation and all of the, the stories over these past, well, really intensely for the last year and looking ahead to the, the pontiff's visit, the Pope coming uh, to what everybody expects and hopes will be an apology uh, for the church's role in residential schools and, and so much. Um, if there's one thing that I've learned is when you say how we handle things, 
is very different than a colonial path or a, a settler's path or or generally um, what we I don't know the right terminology and I'm I'm grateful for I'm I'm grateful for your being uh, patient with my my clunkiness of how I explain this but the conversation is so important that the uh, the Assembly of First Nations handles things differently than what you know, governments might do or what law enforcement might do on a day-to-day should be part of the respected process here. Correct. And thank you for clarifying that. And in, in, and we use, you could use the word we, and of course, and I say that, um, but it's really the, the will of the people. And, and I certainly don't represent, um, you know, that point of view, but we represent it collectively as we serve our communities and so this is where critically there is there is a contrast, you know, with typical government processes or, you know, uh, if you will, um, you know, law enforcement or other things, as you mentioned. We are in a unique situation because this represents the Indigenous lens and specifically with First Nations. And so when the, the concerns of our communities and, and the work that we do with our communities, and I say are as a collective, um, it's really important that we, we do things culturally, we do things that are grounded in our traditional knowledge, and we do things that are good for all of us. And, um, you know, there's always varying opinions, but the, the, always at the key foundation is that we're trying to find some solutions that are, are good for the collective and as best as we can. And now, everybody, you can't, you know, fix every solution or, or have a solution for to fix every problem, but... The key is that we sit down, and, and these are cultural practices. These are this is what we're used to doing. So yeah. um, I'm looking forward to that as as part of this process. I really appreciate your perspective, James, and and I want to circle back with you on the other side of the AGM. I'm filling in again um, later this summer, and and prior to the Pope's visit, I'd love to get an an, an idea of of how things went. Uh, I, I raise my hands in gratitude to you for doing this with me today. I know it's it's much more complex than what can be sort of shoehorned into an eight or ten minute conversation. But 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 just understanding this process a little bit at a time, I think, helps everybody in their path to to being humble learners or or actually punctuating that it's still a conversation that is very important that should be ongoing here uh, on the station. I appreciate your time very much. Jody, I thank you for uh, having me today, and, and you are correct. It is a journey that we're on, and, and you're being an ally by uh, wanting to be part of this conversation. So, Emotsum Swagen, thank you for having me today. I feel really good. All right, welcome back. Days, weeks, months, years spent on arguing about housing while folks are living rough, NIMBYs in full swing, and very few leaning into the middle, into moderation, into gentle density for those who don't want big, tall towers in their neighborhoods, but do want people to have homes in those neighborhoods. Saying that out loud, you can watch people's heads, well, explode, frankly. Back to square one, it all goes as the the full swing battle for uh, an end to the housing affordability issues, particularly in the city of Vancouver. Why are we fighting about towers in Vancouver? Why can't Vancouver perhaps learn from places like Paris and London and Madrid, other cities where widespread gentle density is the mission and affordable housing actually possible because there's supply. Someone who I went back and forth with on this topic a while back is my next guest, Bill Thielman. He's the president of West Star Communications and a team Vancouver council candidate. Bill, it was good to chat with you. Welcome. Thanks, Jody. 
I get all up in arms when I, and I often get into the back and forth with uh, my uh, co-host on Unspun Podcast, uh, George Affleck on this, because George loves the tower. He never met a tower he didn't like, because <laughs> there's no cheaper way to build than straight up. And yet I get vertigo when I'm above the 10th floor in a building. Like it's just, to me, it's, it feels weird. Uh, and yet there's no middle ground really to be f- found between the two of us. Can we find middle ground at City Hall on this? If, if even George and I can't agree. Uh, well, and George and I can't agree either, and I know George quite well, so I don't, I don't blame you for disagreeing with George, put it that way. Okay. Um, but, <laughs> Thank but, you. Listen, Jody, I, for people who've read the Vancouver Sun this morning, uh, I just a couple reports of all, a whole bunch of new towers being proposed by city staff, and um, it notes that Vancouver has more residential high-rises than any other North American city. Uh, any, not, that includes, obviously, New York and L.A. and other places, and uh, 650 buildings over 10 stories and 50 over 32 stories. So um, if you think there's too many towers or an awful lot of towers in Vancouver, you're absolutely right. Uh, the problem we've got now, we've had the Broadway plan, which has been passed by council, and it calls for uh, the, from 16th to 1st, from Vine Street in the west to Clark Drive in the east, three towers per block up to 40 stories all the way along that whole corridor, which is massive. That's, a, that's 500 blocks. And that is simply not what I believe most people in Vancouver want. Um, yes, we can talk about general density. Those kind of towers would be banned in Paris. You can go and look at the metro stations in Paris, in Barcelona, in Vienna, in Amsterdam. And none of them have giant 40-story towers like we have uh, are going to have at Broadway and Granville. It's already under construction. So I think that there's uh, a lot of people in the city saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, what the heck's going on here? And, you know, to say it's just it's the cheapest way to do it, but, but it's I mean, a, it might be, but it might not be, because when we look at the environmental impact of giant concrete towers with glass and steel and uh, all of the first of all, the GHG gas that goes into building them, but then heating and cooling them, um, these yeah. things are not environmentally sound, whereas if you look at Paris uh, and some people said, oh, if you talk about Paris, that means you want six floors or eight floor stories everywhere. Uh, this is Vancouver. It's not Paris. We don't have anywhere near the, the, the population. But they don't have those giant towers except in one small distant part of the city. And uh, they're not going to change that, in, in my view, and, and nor Amsterdam, nor other, other major cities. Let's pivot. Actually, one more thing on the gentle density pieces, because there are so many single family dwellings in the city of Vancouver. There are large parcels of property with with one family living on them where you could ideally have some form of gentle density that doesn't uproot the neighborhood, right? Like if you mm-hmm, all of a sudden mm-hmm, put a 30 story tower in the middle of that, you're going to have a lot of nimbyism. But if you put, take one single family dwelling and turn it into eight, 10 or 12 units, all of a sudden you're growing that community. You're making it. And maybe people saying, Hey, if that, that's some up quote up zoning that I can get behind, uh, you know, both as, uh, being a landowner that can do whatever they want on their piece of property, as well as living in the community long term and, and feeling like, yeah, I want more people living in my neighborhood. There might be that. I've, I'm looking at this eighth and Arbutus housing plan mm-hmm. and how much struggle there's been there. In your learned experience, what do you see happening at eighth and Arbutus ultimately here? Well, to be clear, I did briefly work for the Kitsilano Coalition, which opposes the BC housing proposal, and, and also uh, earlier for St. Augustine School, which is directly across the street. So uh, I just want to be clear, but I don't work for okay. any of them now. Um, the This proposal for a 13-story tower, um, you may remember, Jody, an 11-story tower of condos was rejected at the Broadway and 
Arbutus Corner, where there's now a shell station, was rejected at the staff level previously. Uh, until the Broadway plan passed a couple of uh, weeks ago, this proposal should not even have been considered because it exceeded all the height bylaws, but those have now been shot. So, uh, but nonetheless, all these uh, towers are not going to happen in, in a couple of days, or a couple of weeks, or months, or years even. This is a, 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 basically, it's a sore thumb sticking out in that area because there's nothing that height. You and I both, I think, live in Kitsilino, and we, you know, yeah. there's nothing like that uh, in the neighborhood at all. It's 60 feet from a school. Um, it's a 129 single room only um, supportive housing tower. And um, so, it'll, you know, there's no families, there's no mixed use, et cetera. It's over height, over density. It, it doesn't fit into the neighborhood. There's overwhelming neighborhood opposition. There's five schools and five child cares there. There's a shelter for women, which most people wouldn't even know existed. I didn't know until the last year uh, that's right next to it, which is really challenging. So this is just a, 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 in the wrong place, the wrong size, uh, the wrong configuration and the wrong approach because it kind of warehouses people. So uh, obviously the community is up in arms about it. And it's not going to be helpful to people who need housing to be in that very, very obvious place and, and people being very hostile from the get-go. Um, but we yeah. have, you know, Kitsilino, you and I know there's lots of social housing and supportive housing in Kitsilino, and, and you don't hear about it, you don't see anything because it's integrated into the community, it's low-rise. As it should be, done, as it should be. Been, yeah. And it's been done, like I think the overall piece, Jody, on towers is the community and the neighborhood have to agree at some level. I mean, not everyone unanimously will agree, but we have to find a way to involve neighborhoods, engage them, talk about the issues. The Broadway plan, not a single public open community hearing, not one. This Arbutus yeah. proposal, not a single open public hearing where people could gather together, hear from the proponents, hear from the city, hear from BC Housing, give their concerns, get feedback, and then have that process continue. I know it's been I got to go, Bill. COVID, sorry, sorry about Thank you, Jody. Sorry about this. I'm up on no I'm up against the network here. Thank you, Bill gotcha. Tillman. Okay. We will continue this conversation. Hit up our buzz lines with your take. 604-331-2899.